Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Freddie Hayward, and on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, I'm talking to Sunder Catwaller, director of the think tank British Future, all about the politics of immigration. Sunder, thanks so much for joining us. You are sort of an expert on this issue. Your think tank, Britain, future focus on immigration, integration and the polling around it. Immigration re-entered the political debate in the past few months, particularly given the channel crossing. Nonetheless, attitudes to immigration are much more positive than they were a decade ago. Why is that? Why has that changed? Well, I think we've seen some different big shifts in attitudes. We've seen a very big drop in the salience and the priority given to immigration. That's recovering slightly in the last few months. It's averaged 8% this year in the Ipsos Mori Issues Index. It might be coming up now to the teens again, but that was at 40% 2014, 2015, 2016. So it's certainly fallen down the priority list. And then there's a long-term shift in the balance of attitudes towards more positive attitudes. doesn't mean that immigration attitudes aren't still polarised. Different people think different things about this by politics, by age, by education. And most people are balancers. Most people think there are pressures and gains, but there's been a shift seeing the gains as more important. There's some long-term things there, more contact in our society, more familiarity, and some short-term changes. I think Brexit was cathartic for people who can't say, I'm not even allowed to talk about it, or I get closed down, because you had a debate, you had a referendum, was narrowly for leave and we changed the immigration system and ended free movement. So clearly you can have an impact on on, on what happens. But also the pandemic shifted attitudes a lot to a more positive direction. Attitudes towards immigration for the NHS are much more positive than they were before. And attitudes on the economy generally are considerably more positive than a decade ago. So there's an awareness of the risks of cutting immigration as well as the pressures of having high immigration. Yeah, but do you think we're potentially at a changing point? Just looking at the Channel Crossings reaching £40,000, you mentioned a little bit that immigration is going back up the priority list. Do you think this is a short-term thing, or are we seeing that Brexit dividend of people being a little bit more relaxed about immigration come to an end? I think some of the long-term changes will stay, the long-term demographic shifts, that, that sense of catharsis. The other thing that has changed is more of a sense that immigration isn't one size fits all. And you still go back to that if people say, well, net migration is half a million. Look Mm. how high it is. But people are still going to think very differently about student migration, which they don't think is immigration at all. 
And they're going to think very differently about a quarter of a million Ukrainians coming to Britain where people think it didn't happen fast enough and maybe it should have been higher than they are about 40,000 people crossing the channel in boats, which is going to worry them because of the visibility of the lack of control. That is a return of the asylum issue being dominant, which is was the immigration politics actually of 2001, 2005, when you had asylum applications at 100,000 as well, and you had these similar views. We had an economic migration debate after 2004. So there's a swing back to what is a more heated and more polarised debate, but still actually underlying that, a softer debate about asylum in 2022 than you would have had in 2005. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the Ukrainian aspect of the immigration because during that debate, it was actually the public who were leading the calls for a softer approach and the politicians were slower to act. Is that a new way that policy is going to happen? We've got a more liberal public and a more conservative or, or stricter government and opposition party on immigration. It was the case on Ukraine, and so you cannot say governments foisted from their elite yeah. in Westminster immigration that people didn't want. Actually, the public pushed to have a policy and then individually had to get the Ukrainian refugees in through the system. So you've got tens of thousands of people of all geographies and all political backgrounds actually battling away with the Home Office, the Daily Mail and the Daily Express and the Guardian expressed their frustration at the Home Office in different ways as mm. to what this showed, but they were all frustrated that when something should be happening, it wasn't happening. That is also somewhat the case where people think it isn't common sense. To, people are very in favour of training doctors and nurses, which takes a long time, and so in favour of having doctors and nurses let in, and it would be mad to cancel appointments without doing that. But on other issues, it's probably still the case that the central political gravity is slightly ahead of the public. For example, there's very broad consent for this very large amount of immigration from Hong Kong. Mm. 100,000 people got visas in the first year. But that's a really strong Westminster consensus, completely unlike the debates of 30 years ago when Paddy Ashdown and Norma Tebbit absolutely loggerheads on that issue. The public haven't really heard about that, haven't noticed the scale of it, although they like it when they hear about it, because there are different reasons, Britain's historic responsibilities, human rights and democracy, or standing up to China, for people with different backgrounds to think that's the right thing to do. Yeah, because there was quite a bit of confusion, I think, about the most recent immigration figures, which the net figure was around half a million. I think few people recognise that we had the Ukrainian scheme, the Hong Kong scheme, the Afghan scheme, and students. So they actually made up the bulk of the numbers. What did you make of those figures? Well, it's an exceptionally high number. And also, if people don't understand what's in it with regard to students in particular, because people don't think international students are, are immigrants in that sense, and they wouldn't have them in those statistics. But also, immigration is going to stay high. I think the prevailing rate is 250,000 or so. And there's nothing in what Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are doing, despite what Suella Braverman would like to get it lower. And there's nothing in what Keir Starmer is proposing, although his tone is to be sceptical about high immigration always being the answer. So he'll say to the CPI, well, I don't know about that because mm. low-wage, low-skill immigration isn't my economy. Well, that's also fighting the last battle a bit because he's saying we'll remove the immigration that has gone with the end of free movement. So neither the government nor the opposition is actually making any significant restrictive moves that will get the numbers down, although they're both talking about it wanting to be lower. They could both say it'll probably be lower than the half a million rate, 
But you yeah. probably got Jeremy Hunt saying, well, I can take it back to 2019 levels. And obviously part of his party thing, I thought what we were saying in 2019 is we'd reduce it. But so far, there's quite a lot in public attitudes to say that the people who took the more Boris Johnson approach, controlling doesn't necessarily mean reducing, have had the better of the argument over the Theresa May approach, which was to say what people want is the numbers down, which obviously Sorella Bravman as Home Secretary now would like to do that, but it's not government policy. Yeah, and it's worth saying that the OBR assumed or said that we needed around 200,000 people coming into the country each year to sustain their economic forecast. It's interesting on Labour's policy because you're right, Starmer's tried to strike quite a strict tone on immigration. He spoke at the CBI saying that businesses now had to look to homegrown talent and people's skills rather than trying to bring in people from abroad. Do you think that's a sustainable policy? Do you think that is just him trying to play to a certain section of voters or do you think that's real policy? I think the tone is more sceptical than the policy. I yeah. think the policy is quite a moderate and soft policy. I think Labour wants to bridge. It, it knows that it was on the losing side in 2016 and it lost a general election. That was quite traumatic. And the positive shift in attitudes is real, especially among Labour voters. And they're cautious about it because of the geography of the electoral map. And then maybe they're overcautious about it because of the traumatic experiences of the politics of the last decade. And yet they're not in favour of a net migration target at all. If they're asked the question, would immigration be higher or lower, they don't particularly have a position on that. If you get all of your training right, maybe there'd be less need for immigration in the long run. It's what Keir Starmer is saying. It's also what Jeremy Hunt is saying. It's not actually a proposal that there's anything they'd cut. And I think Labour can bridge its electoral coalition of swing voters in the red wall and younger voters and graduates and minority vote of migrant heritage, but not on numbers. It doesn't need to talk about cutting overall numbers. Two thirds of Labour voters wouldn't reduce overall numbers and about a quarter would. That's very different than would have been the case even in 2015 and certainly in 2005. So the balance they can strike, I think, would be about domestic training matters, but we welcome skills to fill the gap. What they haven't done, there's a latent consensus that was actually unlocked by Boris Johnson on who gets a visa, which Mm. is that having ended free movement, he's quite open to people getting visas above skills levels and salary thresholds. There's also a latent consensus on citizenship and integration, and Labour could do a lot more than that, but they tend not to talk about that because they're still seeing it through an economy and jobs lens. And actually, the public don't really see immigration integration primarily or solely as an economic issue. Yeah, that's interesting because we don't hear integration spoken about as much as we perhaps used to. I think it has moved into the economic sphere more so than during the Brexit debates, for instance. Where is that debate and what do you think the party should be doing? Well, on integration and citizenship, there's a real bridging, I think, between the Red Wall swing voters and the Liberal voters in the city. We've had a lot of debate about who gets a visa to come to Britain, actually for student migration, post-student migration, skilled work and fruit picking. There's actually quite a big public consensus on manage people and let people have visas. But what happens afterwards? If immigration is about the pace of change, then temporary short-term immigration can make the pace of change higher. If people are here long-term, people want them to stay, settle and integrate. Should citizenship be something we actively encourage? The government is entirely neutral and agnostic about whether people should be citizens or not and treats it as a way to get money from people who are staying anyway. But actually, citizenship ceremony is a very powerful symbol 
of people committing to the country they've joined. And that unlocks a sense that we want people to play by the rules and for their children to be treated as equally British. Labour could be, I think, bridging a sort of swing voter and liberal voter coalition much better if it raised the salience of things beyond who do we let come into our country. How do we make it work well and fairly for people who come in and the communities they join? Do resources move quickly enough? Also, what is the identity component of a changing Britain? Do we just count the white British score in the cities and complain about it as Nigel Farage does? Or do we say we've all got to make that work for people of different backgrounds, different heritages? Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The IPR had a good report out recently looking at the political advantage of different stances on immigration for the parties. And according to their report, Labour would benefit much more positively from having a liberalised approach to immigration, whereas the Conservatives, either way, it was actually quite politically neutral because obviously they'd lose a few voters on the right to the Reform Party or for people not voting and on the left they'd lose it to Labour. It's a tricky one for them to manage. Why do you think, for instance, Sunak has made it such a priority of his then if perhaps the public aren't where he is? Is it because the channel crossing is a completely separate issue and they don't relate to the broader polling on immigration that we see more generally? I think there are, I think there are a couple of reasons. I think there's a lot of muscle memory in politics. Mm. And the media. And so immigration is an issue on which the Conservatives had a lead for 40 years and a very strong lead in 2010. And the Labour Party tends to be 10 points ahead, sometimes 20 points ahead on this issue. And that's completely unprecedented. Also, the preference for overall numbers was strong throughout a period when net migration was low and negative when we were seeing Commonwealth migration in the 70s and 80s. It's been very high in the last 20 years under Labour governments and Conservative governments, but the preference for reducing it has fallen to a record low. And so I think partly it's using the playbooks of the past. Partly, I think the Conservative electorate is conflicted in the way that the government is conflicted. And if you're only looking at that 40% of the electorate and worried about losing a quarter of it to Nigel Farage, then Mm. you feel under pressure from the right. Six out of 10 Conservatives 
would reduce overall numbers, and four out of 10 would reduce them a lot. But when we then ask voters what they want to reduce, Conservative voters don't go over a third for any particular strand of working migration. And so it is very much the boats and asylum seekers that haven't got a claim. And people are coming and not looking for a job. People will reduce that, but that isn't really what we're looking at. So they don't want to reduce either doctors and nurses or engineers or fruit pickers at all. So the Conservative vote is actually quite cakeist on immigration. And they've got a government that's quite cakeist on immigration because it it talks about reducing the numbers, but it makes policy decisions that would actively increase immigration. It's easier to get a visa to work in the NHS. There's a new program for Hong Kongers. These policies seeably increased immigration. So Boris Johnson was right to ditch Theresa May's net migration target because he didn't want to aim for it. But he added a promise that the overall numbers would come down when his policy adds up to the overall numbers staying high going up. Yeah, it's interesting because the government are failing on both fronts, as you say. If you look at the broader competence over all policy issues, Labour are surging ahead on many issues that they haven't in the past, the economy, handling of public services, taxation and others. But on immigration as well, which is quite interesting because you've got people on the right saying, well, you're not addressing the issue in the channel. And you've got people on the left saying, well, actually, the way that you're handling it and treating migrants isn't good at all. So they aren't pleasing either side and it puts them in a tricky position. It just, it makes me think, we are, why are they doubling down? That Why is Sunak saying day in, day out that this is what I want to focus on? Beyond the economy, my second issue is the, the channel crossing. Is it in part perhaps because it was a bigger policy in the leadership election and it's potentially more of an issue among Conservative Party members than it is among the general electorate? I'm very sceptical of the idea that a government that's been in for 12 years can weaponize the issue of the failure of the asylum system and the mm. channel crossings against the opposition because the opposition can just say, well, who broke it and we'll fix yeah. it and whether they can fix it or not, we'll see. But the government wants to, it needs to do something to get a grip on a manageable asylum system and whether or not the headline grabbing policies like send 300 people to Rwanda if you can get it through the courts. Nick Timothy's pamphlet says, well, that won't work unless you say we'll send 30,000 people to Rwanda. Well, that's not a real world solution. And so promising to do things in the next parliament that you haven't done in this parliament or in previous parliaments, I think hits this wall of scepticism, which means that liberal voters think that the government is authoritarian. Authoritarian voters think the government is all talk. And actually the balance and middle don't want to choose between control and compassion in the asylum system, because you're making them choose to be nasty if they want order or incredibly soft-hearted. And they do think a competent government would have control and compassion combined in an orderly, humane and effective asylum system. I think the pressure is partly in the party. It's partly that if you're worried about you get from 20% back to 30%, then the ghost of Nigel Farage is a very potent one. Because if Nigel Farage is at 8 or 10% in the election, then the Conservatives aren't at the races. If he's not there and the Conservatives are at 30%, then the Conservatives aren't at the races either. But it might be a luxury good, really, to think about the middle of the election. What has changed is it's the Conservative vote that is somewhat more split and further away from the median voter than the Labour vote. And so all the anxiety of the left about the politics of 2014 and 2016 is less difficult for them if they can do some of this bridging. You've probably got a sixth of the Labour vote that is really quite socially conservative on immigration, but very much Mm. in the middle of the electorate, they're not similar 
to the Farage conservative swing voters, much more centrist on culture and identity than that. Where do you think the Rwanda policy is going to go? It's currently stuck in the courts with multiple legal challenges and it doesn't seem to be actually going to happen. Where do you think it's going to go? Well, Suella Brothman got a lot of flack for saying it was her dream to see a Daily Telegraph front page of a plane taking off. It wasn't so much the plane taking off, it was the Telegraph headline saying it had happened. And what she was actually saying in that was that it isn't going to happen. She's tacitly saying we won't see that before the election. And she can blame the Archbishop of Canterbury and she can blame the lawyers and she can blame the UNHCR. But having a kind of we had a brilliant plan, we were foiled by our opponents. It's a political message, but it's pretty ineffective. So it's probably not going to happen before the election at scale. They would still like to get a plane to go. Um, Rwanda has capacity for 300 people if they can get it through. But it's probably more an argument now that they want to do it and other people stop them, but they would do it again. There's also been a loss of faith in the Rwanda policy among people who back it because there's been an understanding of how limited a solution it was. Rishi Sunak, I think, is sceptical of the Rwanda policy when he was chancellor. He thinks it's a waste of money. He didn't think it was compliant with international law. He didn't think they should do it. And he felt under pressure to back it as a candidate. And he said the only way to fix it is to make sure we can send everybody who crosses the channel to Rwanda. Well, this was the kind of fairy tale that he lost the election for disabusing the party of on taxes. But maybe he felt he had to say that. His plans also include some more sensible things to do to get the asylum system to make decisions again. And so I think you've got Robert Jenrick squirreling away at why is the system blocked and how does it make decisions? And then other people who want to say, well, if the courts will stop us, we'll tear up the European Convention, we'll turn up the Refugee Convention. None of that's going to fly through the current Conservative Parliamentary Party and it would split their electorate. So I think you have a rule of asylum politics that the more noise you make, the less you're actually doing something that could work. And what the Conservatives, I think, need to do is demonstrate some competence on this issue and sending £140 million to Rwanda and doing nothing about it doesn't sound to me the basis of an election-winning argument that your Rwanda policy was the solution. Sunder Catwaller, thank you very much. Thanks. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Freddie Hayward, and my guest, Sunder Catwaller. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a nice review. Our producer is Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.